Well, listeners, it's almost the end of 2019, and I wanted to break my normal routine to say to all of you, whether you are a Patreon donator of this podcast or not, or a listener on the other end that just enjoys listening to the stories I tell, that I am so grateful for your support. Whether it's Patreon itself, iTunes reviews, emailing me to ask questions or share stories, Every moment has been special to me. It's been a really fantastic year. I've had the pleasure of releasing over 500 episodes in total, over 1 million downloads and counting, new collaborations, and an improved show. I have all of you to thank for that. This would not be possible without people like you listening and supporting me with episode downloads. To the current 12 patrons that support this show, Thank you so much for your donations. Your direct donations are supporting the podcast and shaping it to what it will become. I've been able to purchase new remastering software to remaster old-time radio episodes, obtain a brand new and awesome mic to output high-quality recordings, and in one month of your Patreon support, you pay for my hosting expenses to both Audioboom and SoundCloud. All of you are just fantastic. Thank you all again for making this happen. Now, starting today, I'll be out for the count from the 16th to the 2nd, but I'll be back after that. Listeners, if you have any questions, throw them my way via email at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. Don't be shy. I absolutely love hearing from listeners. I'll be sure to answer them, but please before the 16th, as I'll be in Singapore then, and without equipment or internet access. A special thank you to Matthew J. Bauer and Maya, my first Ode Night Tea Titans ever, setting the bar extremely high with their leadership regarding support and fiscally fueling this podcast like I'm on rocket fuel. And my white tea warlords, Ion Cows and Lee Bauer, for supporting the podcast, giving great feedback, hilarious comments to have me smiling from ear to ear. You two are supporting the show immensely. All of you have shaped this show over the past couple of months in fantastic ways. Thanks again. And of course, my Elgrain forces that planted the seed of support to grow. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, and Robert Fisher. You're all amazing. I'm going to sign out here, mates. Have a fantastic new year. And I'm looking forward to being back in January to start the year with fresh new stories and new collaborations. Take care, you lovelies. And as always, till next we meet. The Alchemist High up, crowning the grassy summit of a swelling mound whose sides are wooded near the base, with the gnarled trees of the primeval forest, stands the old chateau of my ancestors. For centuries, its lofty battlements have frowned down upon the wild and rugged countryside about, serving as a home and stronghold for the proud house whose honoured line is older even than the moss-grown castle walls. These ancient turrets, stained by the storms of generations, and crumbling under the slow yet mighty pressure of time, 
formed in the ages of feudalism, one of the most dreaded and formidable fortresses in all France. From its maculated parapets and mounted battlements, barons, counts, and even kings had been defied, yet never had its spacious halls resounded to the footstep of the invader. But since those glorious years, all is changed. A poverty but little above the level of dire want, together with a pride of name that forbids its elevation by the pursuits of commercial life, have prevented the science of our line for maintaining their estates in pristine splendor and the falling stones of the walls. The overgrown vegetation in the parks, the dry and dusty moat, the ill-paved courtyards, and toppling towers without, as well as the sagging floors, the worm-eaten wainscots, and the faded tapestry within, all tell a gloomy tale of fallen grandeur. As the ages passed, first one, then another, of the four great turrets were left to ruin, until at last, but a single tower housed the sadly reduced descendants of the once mighty lords of the estate. It was in one of the vast and gloomy chambers of this remaining tower that I, Antoine, last of the unhappy and accursed comets Dis Danta Redacted, first saw the light of day, ninety long years ago. Within these walls and amongst the dark and shadowy forests, the wild ravines and grottos of the hillside below, where spent the first years of my troubled life. My parents, I never knew them. My father had been killed at the age of 32, a month before I was born, by the fall of a stone somehow dislodged from one of the deserted parapets of the castle, and my mother having died at my birth, my care and education devolved slowly upon one remaining servitor, an old and trusted man of considerable intelligence, whose name I remember as Pierre. I was an only child, and the lack of companionship which this fact entailed upon me was augmented by the strange care exercised by my aged guardian in excluding me from the society of the peasant children whose abodes were scattered here and there upon the plains that surround the base of the hill. At the time, Pierre said that this restriction was imposed upon me because my noble birth placed me above association with such plebeian company. Now I know that its real object was to keep from my ears the idle tales of the dread curse upon our line, that were nightly told and magnified by the simple tenantry as they conversed in hushed accents in the glow of their cottage hearths. Thus, isolated, and thrown upon my own resources, I spent the hours of my childhood in poring over the ancient tombs that filled the shadow-haunted library of the chateau, and in roaming without aim or purpose through the perpetual dusk of the spectral wood that clothes the sides of the hill near its foot. It was perhaps an effect of such surroundings that my mind early acquainted a shade of melancholy. Those studies and pursuits which partake of the dark and occult in nature most strongly claimed my attention. Of my own race, I was permitted to learn singularly little, 
yet what small knowledge of what I was able to gain seemed to depress me much. Perhaps it was at first only the manifest reluctance of my old preceptor to discuss with me my paternal ancestry that gave rise to the terror which I ever felt at the mention of my great house. Yet as I grew out of childhood, I was able to piece together disconnected fragments of discourse, let slip from the unwilling tongue which had begun to falter in approaching senility. That had a sort of relation to a certain circumstance which I had always deemed strange, but which now became dimly terrible. The circumstance to which I allude is the early age at which all the comps of my line had met their end. Whilst I had hitherto considered this but a natural attribute of a family of short-lived men, I afterward pondered long upon these premature deaths and began to connect them with the wanderings of the old man, who often spoke of a curse which for centuries had prevented the lives of the holders of my title for much exceeding the span of thirty-two years. Upon my twenty-first birthday, the aged Pierre gave to me a family document which he said had for many generations been handed down from father to son, and continued by each possessor. Its contents were of the most startling nature, and its perusal confirmed the gravest of my apprehensions. At this time, my belief in the supernatural was firm and deep-seated, else I should have dismissed with scorn the incredible narrative unfolded before my eyes. The paper carried me back to the days of the 13th century, when the old castle in which I sat had been a feared and impregnable fortress. It told of a certain ancient man who had once dwelt on our estates, a person of no small accomplishments, though little above the rank of peasant by name, Mikel usually designated by the surname of Mauvais, the evil, on account of his sinister reputation. He had studied beyond the custom of his kind, seeking such things as the Philosopher's Stone or the Elixir of Eternal Life, and was reputed wise in the terrible secrets of black magic and alchemy. Mikhail Mauvais had one son, named Charles a youth as proficient as himself in the hidden arts, and who had therefore been called Le Sorcière, or The Wizard. This pair, shunned by all honest folk, were suspected of the most hideous practices. Old Mikkel was said to have burnt his wife alive as a sacrifice to the devil, and the unaccountable disappearances of many small peasant children were laid at the dreaded door of these two. Yet, through the dark natures of the father and the son ran one redeeming ray of humanity. The evil old man loved his offspring with fierce intensity, whilst the youth had for his parent a more than filial affection. One night the castle on the hill was thrown into the wildest confusion by the vanishment of young Godfrey, son to Henry the Comte. A searching party, headed by the frantic father, invaded the cottage of the sorcerers, and there came upon old Mikkel Mauvais, busy over a huge and violently boiling cauldron. 
without certain cause, in the ungoverned madness of fury and despair, the Comte laid hand on the aged wizard, and ere he realized his murderous hold, his victim was no more. Meanwhile, joyous servants were proclaiming aloud the finding of young Godfrey in a distant and unused chamber of the great edifice, telling too late that poor Mikkel had been killed in vain. As the Comte and his associates turned away from the lowly abode of the alchemists, the form of Charles Le Saucier appeared through the trees. The excited chatter of the menials standing about told him what had occurred. Yet he seemed at first unmoved at his father's fate, then slowly, advancing to meet the Comte, he pronounced in dull yet terrible accents the curse that ever afterward haunted the house of Data Redacted. May near a noble of thy murderous line survive to reach a greater age than thine. Spake he when... Suddenly leaping backwards into the black wood, he drew from his tunic a phial of colorless liquid which he threw in the face of his father's slayer as he disappeared behind the inky curtain of the night. The comte died without utterance and was buried the next day. But little more than two and thirty years from the hour of his birth, no trace of the assassin could be found. Though relentless bands of peasants scoured the neighboring woods and the meadow land around the hill. Thus time and the want of a reminder dull the memory of the curse in the mines, so that when Godfrey, innocent cause of the whole tragedy, and now bearing the title, was killed by an arrow whilst hunting, at the age of 32, there were no thoughts save those of grief at his demise, but when, years afterward, the next young Comte, Robert by name, was found dead in a nearby field from no apparent cause, the peasants told in whispers that their seigneur had been lately passed by his 32nd birthday when surprised by early death, was found drowned in the moat at the same fateful age, and thus down through the centuries ran the ominous chronicle. Henris, Roberts, Antoines, and Amas, snatched from happy and virtuous lives when little below the age of their unfortunate ancestor at his murder. That I had left at most but eleven years of further existence was made certain to me by the word which I read. My life, previously held at small value, now became dearer to me each day. As I delved deeper and deeper into the mysteries of the hidden world of black magic, isolated as I was, modern science had produced no impression upon me, and I laboured as in the Middle Ages, as rapt as had been old Mikkel and young Charles themselves in the acquisition of demonological and alchemical learning. Yet read as I might, in no manner could I account for the strange curse upon my line. In unusually rational moments, I would even go so far as to seek a natural explanation, attributing the early deaths of my ancestors to the sinister Charles Le Sorcier and his heirs. Yet having found upon careful inquiry that there were no known descendants of the alchemist, I would fall back to my occult studies, and once more endeavour to find a spell that would release my house from its terrible burden. Upon one thing I was absolutely resolved. I should never wed, for since no other branches of my family were in existence, 
I might thus end the curse with myself. As I drew near the age of thirty, old Pierre was called to the land beyond. Alone, I buried him beneath the stones of the courtyard about which he had loved to wander in life. Thus was I left to ponder on myself. As the only human creature within the great fortress, and in my utter solitude my mind began to cease its vain protest against the impending doom. To become almost reconciled to the fate which so many of my ancestors had met, much of my time was now occupied in the exploration of the ruined and abandoned halls and towers of the old chateau, which in youth fear had caused me to shun, and some of which old Pierre had once told me had not been trodden by human foot for over four centuries. Strange and awesome were many of the objects I encountered. Furniture, covered by the dust of ages and crumbling with the rot of long dampness, met my eyes. Cobwebs in a profusion never before seen by me were spun everywhere, and huge bats flapped their bony and uncanny wings on all sides of the otherwise unattended gloom. Of my exact age, even down to days and hours, I kept a most careful record, for each moment of the pendulum, of the massive clock in the library, told off so much more of my doomed existence. At length I approached that time, which I had so long viewed with apprehension. Since most of my ancestors had been seized some little while before they reached their exact age of the Comte Henry at his end, I was every moment on the watch for the coming of the unknown death. In what strange form the curse should overtake me, I knew not, but I was resolved at least that it should not find me a cowardly or a passive victim. With new vigour, I applied myself to my examination of the old chateau and its contents. It was upon one of the longest of all my excursions of discovery in the deserted portion of the castle, less than a week before that fatal hour which I felt must mark the utmost limit of my stay on earth, beyond which I could have not even the slightest hope of continuing to draw breath, that I came upon the culminating event of my whole life. I had spent the better part of the morning in climbing up and down half-ruined staircases in one of the most dilapidated of the ancient turrets. As the afternoon progressed, I sought the lower levels, descending into what appeared to be either a medieval place of confinement or a more recently excavated storehouse for gunpowder. As I slowly traversed the nitra-encrusted passageway at the foot of the last staircase, the paving became very damp and soon I saw by the light of my flickering torch that a blank, water-stained wall impeded my journey. Turning to retrace my steps, my eye fell upon a small trapdoor with a ring, which lay directly beneath my feet. Pausing, I succeeded with difficulty in raising it, whereupon there was revealed a black aperture, exhaling noxious fumes which caused my torch to sputter, and disclosing in the unsteady glare the top of a flight of stone steps, as soon as the torch, which I lowered into the repellent depths, burned freely and steadily, I commenced my descent. The steps were many, and led to a narrow stone-flagged passage which I knew must be far underground. This passage proved of great length, and terminated in a massive oaken door, dripping with the moisture of the place. 
and stoutly resisting all my attempts to open it. Ceasing after a time, my efforts in this direction, I had proceeded back some distance towards the steps. There, when there suddenly fell to my experience one of the most profound and maddening shocks capable of reception by the human mind. Without warning, I heard the heavy door behind me creak slowly open upon its rusted hinges. My immediate sensations are incapable of analysis. To be confronted in a place as thoroughly deserted as I had deemed the old castle, with evidence of the presence of man or spirit, produced in my brain a horror of the most acute description. When at last I turned and faced the seat of the sound, my eyes must have started from their orbits at the sight they have beheld. There in the ancient gothic doorway stood a human figure. It was that of a man clad in a skullcap and long medieval tu tunic of dark colour. His long hair and flowing beard were of a terrible and intense black hue, and of incredible profusion. His forehead high beyond the usual dimensions, his cheeks deep sunken and heavily lined with wrinkles, and his hands long, claw-like, and gnarled, were of a such a deathly marble-like whiteness as I have never elsewhere seen in man. His figure, lean to the proportions of a skeleton, was strangely bent, and almost lost within the voluminous folds of his peculiar garment. But strangest of all were his eyes, twin caves of abysmal blackness, profound in expression of understanding, yet inhuman in degree of wickedness. These were now fixed upon me, piercing my soul with their hatred and rooting me to the spot whereon I stood. At last, the figure spoke in a rumbling voice that chilled me through with its dull hollowness and latent malevolence. The language in which the discourse was clothed was that debased form of Latin, in use amongst the more learned men of the Middle Ages, and made familiar to me by my prolonged researches into the works of the old alchemists and demonologists. The apparition spoke of the curse which had hovered over my house told me of my coming end, dwelt on the wrong perpetrated by my ancestors against old Michel Malvice, and gloated over the revenge of Charles Le Sorcier. He told me how the young Charles had escaped into the night, returning in after years to kill Godfrey the heir with an arrow just as he approached the age which had been his father's at his assassination. How he had secretly returned to the estate and established himself in the even then deserted subterranean chamber whose doorway now framed the hideous narrator. How he had seized Robert, son of Godfrey, in a field, forced poison down his throat and left him to die at the age of 32, thus maintaining the foul provisions of his vengeful curse. At this point, I was left to imagine the solution of the greatest mystery of all, how the curse had been fulfilled since that time when Charles Le Sorcier must in the course of nature have died. For the man digressed into an account of the deep alchemical studies of the two wizards, father and son, speaking most particularly of the researches of Charles Le Sorcier. 
concerning the elixir which should grant to him who partook of it eternal life and youth. His enthusiasm had seemed for the moment to remove from his terrible eyes the hatred that had at first so haunted them. But suddenly, the fiendish glare returned, and with a shocking sound, like the hissing of a serpent, the stranger raised a glass file with the evident intent of ending my life, as had Charles Le Sorcier, 600 years before, ended that of my ancestor. Prompted by some persevering instinct of self-defense, I broke through the spell that had hitherto held me immovable and flung my now dying torch at the creature who menaced my existence. I heard the file break harmlessly against the stones of the passage as the tunic of the strange man caught fire and lit the horrid scene with a ghastly radiance. The shriek of fright and impotent malice emitted by the would-be assassin proved too much for my already shaken nerves and I fell prone upon the slimy floor in a total faint. When at last my senses returned, all was frightfully dark, and my mind, remembering what had occurred, shrank from the idea of beholding more, yet curiosity overmastered all. Who, I asked myself, was this man of evil, and how came he within the castle walls? Why should he seek to avenge the death of poor Mikhail Malvice? And how had the curse been carried on through all the long centuries since the time of Charles Le Sorcier? The dread of years was lifted off my shoulders, for I knew that he whom I had felled was the source of all my danger from the curse, and now that I was free, I burned with the desire to learn more of the sinister thing which had haunted my line for centuries, and made of my own youth one long continued nightmare. Determined upon further exploration, I felt in my pockets for flint and steel, and lit the unused torch which I had with me. First of all, the new light revealed the distorted and blackened form of the mysterious stranger. The hideous eyes were now closed. Disliking the sight, I turned away and entered the chamber beyond the gothic door. Here I found what seemed much like an alchemist's laboratory. In one corner was an immense pile of shining yellow metal that sparkled gorgeously in the light of the torch. It may have been gold, but I did not pause to examine it, for I was strangely affected by that which I had undergone. At the farther end of the apartment was an opening leading out into one of the many wild ravines of the dark hillside forest, filled with wonder, yet now realizing how the man had obtained access to the chateau. I proceeded to return. I had intended to pass by the remains of the stranger with averted face, but as I approached the body, I seemed to hear, emanating from it a faint sound, as though life were not yet wholly extinct. Aghast, I turned to examine the charred and shriveled figure on the floor. Then all at once the horrible eyes, blacker even than the seared face in which they were set opened wide with an expression which I was unable to interpret. The cracked lips tried to frame words which I could not well understand. Once I caught the name of Charles Le Sorcier, and again, I fancied that the words years and curse issued from the twisted mouth. Still, I was at a loss to gather the purport of his disconnected speech. 
At my evident ignorance of his meaning, the pitchy eyes once more flashed malevolently at me, until, helpless as I saw my opponent to be, I trembled as I watched him. Suddenly, the wretch animated with his last burst of strength raised his hideous head from the damp and sunken pavement. Then, as I remained paralyzed with fear, he found his voice and in his dying breath screamed forth those words which have ever afterward haunted my days and my nights. Fool! He shrieked. Could you not guess my secret? Have you no brain, whereby you may recognize the will which has through six long centuries fulfilled the dreadful curse upon your house? Have I not told you of the great elixir of eternal life? Know you not how the secret of alchemy was solved? I tell you, it is I, 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 that have lived for six hundred years to maintain my revenge, for I am Charles Le Sorcier. It much, Goodness, Phil, my cooking that fast? Sam, your head's practically in your plate. <laughs> I guess it's falling asleep, everyone. I'm, I'm so sorry. Oh, that's all right. Sam, Sam, sit up. Dreadful. I'd, I'd better shake him. Sam. Sam! Wait, can't he? He's dead. How do you do? I'm Sergeant Barker, the homicide division. Oh. He's one of my boys, Mike Grady. Where's the body? In the dining room at the table. We didn't move him. Mm -hmm. I uh, might as well be comfortable, everybody. This will take just a little while. Mm. Dead, all right. Peaceful, too. Uh, who's Mrs. Sam Brown? I am. And do you mind telling me what happened? I guess not, but I'm so shocked. I, I don't know where to begin or what to tell you. Well, you might as well begin by telling me what you served for dinner. Well, we had soup first. Soup? What kind? Mushroom, then... Roast chicken, green peas, mashed potatoes, certain coffee. But I, I don't see how this could mean anything. Yeah, just routine, Mrs. Brown. Did Mr. Brown eat everything? Yes, he did. He seemed to fall asleep over his coffee. Mm -hmm. And when I tried to wake him, I, I found he had a heart attack. Yeah. That'll be all for a few minutes, Mrs. Brown. We want to take a look around. Uh, notice anything about this table, Mike? No, Chief, I can't say as I do. Yeah, neither do I. Let's uh, look in this kitchen here. Yeah, orderly person, isn't she? Stack dishes after each course. Yes, and here's the silverware over here. Ah, look, look, Chief. One of these soup spoons has turned black. Right? Let me see it. Ah, the only spoon that's tarnished, too. Well, I was beginning to think it was a heart attack or a perfect murder, but this silver soup spoon is evidence enough. Uh, Mrs. Brown? Yes, Sergeant Parker? 
I'm sorry to interrupt your little party, Mrs. Brown, but I'm sure your guests won't mind. I, I don't understand. You will, Mrs. Brown, you will. You see, you're under arrest for the murder of your husband. Do you know why Sergeant Barker accused Mrs. Brown of murder? In a moment, we'll hear the solution. But first, a word from our sponsor. And now, back to our story. Sergeant Barker, how do you know it was homicide? Well, Mrs. Brown took careful pains to wash the soup pans and soup dishes before she served the rest of the meal. Yes, I can see that. But she forgot one thing, to wash the silver soup spoons. What she didn't realize was that an hour later, by the end of dinner, the spoon her husband had used to eat his toadstool soup would give her away. She didn't know that toadstools make silver turn black. Mrs. Brown almost committed the perfect murder. But she forgot to wash one spoon. And this ends the final episode of this year, 2019.